welcome back. We've had our little siesta, couple weeks off, kicking back in the sun, but racing's just around the corner, so life in the peloton is back, and I've got Lionel back on board. Richard's out, kicked him out after one week. Welcome back, Lionel. Great to have you on board. Thanks very much. Yeah, I took my birthday week off. Much appreciated having a a week off to celebrate my birthday in fine style, Mitch. And uh, well, I feel like we've been here before. We're we're on the eve just about of Strada Bianca. And of course, we were here in the spring, weren't we? And uh, well, we're going to hear a bit about Strada Bianca in, in this episode. But it's originally the autumn race that's now a spring classic being held in the middle of the Italian summer. They've found a new slot for it, you know, because I was quite excited to find out that it was actually on the eve of Aroika, which is a great ride that I still haven't done. I don't know how I haven't done that ride, but it was created from that ride, which we get into in the podcast. But before we get into that, something I want to ask you, what happened on the week of Lionel? What was the week of birthday celebrations? I just just had a very chilled week, Mitch. I like to take, yeah, I'm, my birthday falls at the very start of July. And nine years out of 10, I'm at the Tour de France. So I'm kind of working or perhaps traveling to the Tour de France. So I just took the opportunity to uh, spend the day with the family and, uh, you know, have some nice food and, and some nice wine and, and uh, just didn't think about cycling all day. It was, uh, it was lovely. Yes, yeah, nice. I like that. I like the week birthday celebrations. I try and definitely pat it out before and pat it out after. I, I like your idea. But... um. This episode, like you said, is all about Strada Bianchi and also a bit of fun moments with Durbo and I, Luke Durbridge that is. He's my favorite guest to have on the podcast just because we talk every day out riding and it's funny once we put a microphone in front of us. That's what I think anyway. I hope you guys really enjoy it. It's talking about Strada Bianchi. We're talking about the season coming. Also a little bit about lockdown, which I think is quite good. Zwift season. Sit back and enjoy this one because the race is around the corner. And we're talking racing. Welcome, my friend, Luke Durridge. We're back at Life in the Peloton, my favourite guest. We're back at home. We're doing it face-to-face <laughs> recording. I can't believe it. Like... <laughs> This is a dream. Oh, I can't do another Zoom call, eh? <laughs> I actually get to see my guests. We actually get to have a beer together. Proper beer. Not yep. that I wasn't having beers on the uh, on the live, uh, online ones, but it's not the same. Nah, it's good to be back on and uh, sharing a beer with you and uh, up in, in your lovely house in uh, in Girona. So, yeah, cheers, mate. And uh, cheers. let's rip into a, another Life in Peloton episode, which is... I've been thoroughly enjoying during lockdown. Been some really great guests, and uh, yeah, it's been it's been rolling along pretty well. I guess a lot of time for people to listen. There has been, and it's been a good response, and it's put a bit of pressure on me. But let's talk about that. I've got you on today. I want to explain to everyone why I've got Luke on again today because the last time I touched base with you was on the eve of the classics, as we always do the classics chat, and I feel like it was really appropriate to talk to you again as we enter the new season. Classics, <laughs> Grand Tours, Season, yeah. Tour de France preview, yeah, Classics yeah. preview, everything preview. And I thought, you and I do the Tour preview, we do the Classics preview, so let's just do it all again. But before we get into that, let's talk about the last, what is it, three, four months. Yep. Let's talk about lockdown. Let's talk about the Zwift season. Let's talk about this weird pre-season that we've had together. And then we'll, I'll, let's go into the season then. 
Tell me briefly, because I know everyone's heard a million stories about lockdown. We don't need to go into the intricate details of that. Tell me in a wrap up your lockdown, your emotional state, your mental state, as you sort of went through the ebbs and flows to where you are now. Yeah, I mean, we've spoken about this a lot of the time out on the road, riding together since lockdown ended. But uh, yeah, I, I guess I didn't handle lockdown too bad. Me mentally, I had to physically exert myself. I'm quite similar to yourself. Um, so I really hopped into the, the, the ability to race on Zwift and um, really pushed hard on, on the Zwift races. But that was more just to clear my mind each day. So I would get up in the morning, do a, a Zwift race, and then do a Zwift race in the afternoon. So I pretty much just did the whole lockdown racing every day. Should we tell people about our, because in the beginning of lockdown, almost this is why I thought of it, because it was a bit like this. It was like, oh, I need to get this sort of release. And we we threw another spanner in the works. We were doing these cheeky runs. Yes. And we'd meet in the dark. True, yeah. We haven't actually spoken about that yet. Not no. publicly, no. no. It was in the very beginning of lockdown. <laughs> it felt very naughty. It was in that first week. We're like, oh, you're going to get busted. You know, we've got to meet at seven in the dark. <laughs> yeah, I'd get up at sunrise. I'd kid up and you'd be out on the track and we'd, we'd sort of meet up in the bush somewhere and we'd go for a 10K run. And we'd do that, you know, once or twice in the week. Um, and then it just got to that point where... Yeah, I mean, we, we were social distancing anyway, but it's, it was just, we were just taking the risk. And I think a couple of times I came home and I'd have a shopping trolley, a shopping bag in my back pocket from running. And, uh, you know, as soon as I come into town, I'd instantly go into a walk, put the mask on and have the bag on the yeah. shoulder and go pick up some oranges on the way home just to justify my run. But yeah, that, that sort of was short-lived. But We it, waited up. We're like... For the benefit and the release we're getting from the runners, great as they were, we're like, this is too much of a risk and we shut it down, unfortunately. But unfortunately. Yeah, so to, tell me, because I was with you on, on that whole Zwift notion of I labelled it as earning a beer because we were consuming a good amount of beers. <laughs> and in order to... For sanity, maybe. But yeah. <laughs> in order to justify that, in my mind, I was like, I've got to have a hard race. I've got to have a hard session every day. What Was, was that your theory? Yeah, and sometimes we'd actually call each other, you know, and, and we'd be racing together, sort of linked up and, you know, talking to each other. Like, I think one race we had with a couple other pros on there, they didn't quite understand how this race went down and we went out of the blocks and we thought, well, we're going to go for really hard up this first climb. And if you don't go for hard up this first climb, then you're out of the race. And, you know, before you know it, 5K in, <laughs> those other pros were out of the race and don't know what happened, but me and you were like laughing because we knew how to race. But... Um, I really kind of enjoyed it, you know. Yeah. I mean, I love riding my bike, and I don't think that changes in the season or out of the season. I love physical exercise and pushing my body and enjoying out with friends and racing. So I didn't really put it down to sort of like it was a really burden to go on the Zwift if it was with a in a, a Zwift community. You mm-hmm. know, if I was alone on Zwift riding around for hours and hours, I'd probably want to blow my brains out. Because I was on there racing like a club crit with you or with another mate or whatever, and I had that sort of inner competition, that's why I love cycling, then it was pretty easy, you know? Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, every everything you do has a, um, what do they say, a, a time? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A limit. A limit, yeah. a limit. And after two months, Zwift had its limit. And- well, tell me, because this is something I discovered as well and something I didn't realize... 
What made people better, or even yourself, what makes a good Zwift racer compared to a bad Zwift racer? Because everyone just assumes that if you're pro, you're going to be good on Zwift. I quickly found out that's not true. I was still competitive because of my physical ability. Mm. All the little things you uncovered, and what do you think then, even from how good you got, there were still guys a lot better than us and you. What made them even better, and what makes someone bad? Well, I think there's the, the major element is mental. And I think if you really got into it and you wanted to learn about how to race on Zwift or not even just Zwift, there's other programs out there, Full Gas and Ruby and all mm. this, you know, you were top 10 in that Ruby race, I was top 10 as well. Like there's, I think it was a lot of it was just mental. Mm. You literally knew what you were in for. You're in for a lot of suffering on a home trainer that may or may mean nothing mm. in the end. Maybe it doesn't mean anything about contract for next year or you know, your 10th in a Tour de France virtual race doesn't really matter, but... You had to draw some kind of other inspiration, whatever that was. Whatever a beer, six-pack of beers, eight-pack, 12-pack. 12 12-pack, 12 20-pack of beers. Yeah, I think number one was mental, you know? And if you got over that mental battle, then it's just about the engine. Yeah. And a lot of those guys, you know, if you think about the guys that were really, really winning these big races, they are the guys that mentally got around it and two, they are genetic freaks as well. So are you saying anyone who finished top 10 in a Zwift race is a freak? Absolute freak. <laughs> oh, yeah. Happy with that 10th in a couple there. But let's draw the line. It's still not racing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Lockdown, done and dusted. It was hard when we came out, but it was glorious as so, well. Talk to me now, because this is something everyone just assumes that... And I thought this was going to be like that for me. As soon as we came out of lockdown, because I feel like in Spain, we had a proper lockdown. And that's nothing against anyone who didn't. I would hope anyone doesn't have to do that. But anyone who was in proper force house lockdown, when you came out, I thought there was going to be like this amazing... Elation or... Yeah, yeah like, yeah, oh my yeah. God, this freedom. Yeah. And yes, there wasn't... Champagne out- bottles and just... <laughs> It well, was what was weird. it like for you? Was it because for me it was different? I yeah. had a feeling like I I felt guilty. I should be back home helping my wife with the kids, Liddy. And but what was it like for you? Were you like I'm free? I I think I think it was the same. You know, you, you literally got each other through. You, you got your family. Mm. You know, your wife Liddy and and your kids Marlo and Esther. They you, you were there supporting, and they were there supporting you. And you were this team fighting out this sort of internal battle against lockdown you know what i mean it sounds weird but it was it was mm. kind of like how are we going to get through it you without know? losing your mind without yeah. losing your mind and you supported each other so i was in the same boat as like when i got out i was like oh, i kind of want to get back mm. to my house because you know my wife supported me through lockdown and i want to support her and she's at home still by herself and we could train because we were pros but normal people couldn't necessarily go out and train all day so it was this really weird mm. vibe and I reckon I suffered more post-lockdown for the first month mm. than I did during lockdown. During yeah, lockdown, you had some sort of target to sort of keep yourself sane. But post-lockdown, that sort of really weird transition was if we're going to race, why does it matter if I do six or mm. one hour on the bike? It doesn't matter. Like, we don't even know. So this was that, 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 that sort of... Um, tricky period i think everyone's the same but it was weird it was very weird and i think it was just that for me i've tried to pinpoint it down to when i first went to lockdown i struggled with that got used to it first came out of lockdown i struggled with that but got used to it and then we're in this next phase which we're right at the end of now is this pre-season 
in the middle of the year, mm-hmm. something you're really not used to because during the Tour de France, I've always done a bit of a rebuild. So it sort of feels somewhat similar to me. But for you, it's a completely new thing because you've done the tour for the last, what, six years? Yeah, seven years, I think, yeah. So in the middle of July, you're normally sweating it out in France, but now you're doing a whole build. And not only that, you're doing it with all your teammates, the whole peloton. We're up in Andorra and you're literally seeing 100 pros a day. It was so weird. It's incredible, isn't it? Tell me about this now. Uh, yeah, we spoke this, about this before, but I, I definitely feel that um, it was strange because it was great because there were so many people around. We were up in Andorra together uh, training, but you know, you yeah, like I said, you'd see hundreds of pros. Like it was insane how many pe- people are up there, um, and I feel that everyone was in this. I guess with with racing, you get um, uh, validation of where your forms at. Mm. or where your training's at or where you are mentally or physically. And without racing, you don't get that validation. And when you're out training, you're with training with other pros that, I mean, we would never go out and, with eight guys during in July, you know, one or two or something like that. But if you go on a, on a bunch ride with eight guys, eight professionals, you're sort of thinking like, oh, he's looking skinny and you know, like, mm. how's he going? Or, oh, he hasn't really handled lockdown very well. Or I or know he's, he's doing... You know, even for me, it was this, this whole hour game. And everyone's sort of throwing out, like we spoke about this, everyone's throwing out hours. Like, oh, I'm doing 30 hours. Oh, I'm yeah. doing 35. Oh, I heard Valgren did 50. You know, you're I like, did hear that. Yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, well, maybe I should be doing 60. Yeah. I've been so locked down for three months. Maybe I should just double the training or, you know. It was weird. And I think something you really pointed out well is it could be different for the Europeans but definitely for us we don't do that back in Australia we train with maybe one other pro two at the most if not alone Mm -hmm. with your own little training group which could be amateurs could be just Sunday morning punters in November, December yeah yeah, before we start the season yeah so you never get that chance to really compare yourself and you never have a problem with it but all of a sudden there was this weird underlying unspoken (laughs) competition (laughs) I mean we take training pretty seriously. Maybe other guys didn't feel the same way, but I definitely felt it in terms of there was some sort of positive elements about it. You know what I mean? Because without racing, like I said, we don't get the validation. So you did need, you know, you to kick my ass if mm. I wasn't in good shape. Mm. She's like, well, he's in good shape and I need to be in good shape. So because racing's starting soon. So there, that was sort of, I feel like, a good thing. Mm. But the, other, the bad thing was it was... Every coach or every athlete has their way to, you know, skin a cat to, to arrive at the goal in the best condition. So when you are in this build phase and someone might be in a recovery phase and then, you know, you, you sort of come together and someone hands it to you and, and then now you start to doubt what the coach has prescribed you. So you lose sight of mm. the overall picture for your end goal. And maybe your first goal is not the first race when you start training. Maybe it's the Giro, which is a couple like a month, couple months down. Hmm. So this is the hard one: is like you all of a sudden seeing everyone flying and you're not, and you have to prepare. But I mean, it's all little insecurity cyclists it have, is. isn't it? It's like it's just trying to stay confident in what you're doing and exactly. not getting sidetracked. And it sounds like very easy, but. You know, you know, you've got a purpose, and it really reminded me that I work privately with a coach, Kevin, and I was very thankful that I had him in my back pocket because I went whenever I went out on these rides, you're listening. Oh, what am I doing? Am I doing the right thing? Went back home, checked in with him. 
He's like, no, you're good. You're on the right thing. Seven hours tomorrow, seven hours the next day, seven hours a day after the next. (laughs) So no, we're going for 52 hours. (laughs) I couldn't do that. No, no. Well done, Varagran. Yeah. Chapeau. Well, let's move on to the next thing because this is very exciting for me. And I described this to you today. We're out doing a bit of a ride this morning. And I said to you, Strata Bianchi, it's the first race back. And I've scored a ticket. You've got the golden ticket as well. Mm-hmm. We're on the bus to Strata. We're on the bus to Strata. And Get your test first, but we're on the bus. <laughs> That's a whole other topic, and I think quite boring for this conversation, yeah, 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 yeah. but we've got to get a lot of testing done. But I started thinking about it, and I was like, I haven't been that excited about a race that I've... I've never done Strata Bianchi before, and I thought, I've never been excited about a race like this since before I was pro, before I had done Paris-Roubaix, before I'd done the classics, I was like, there's races I've never done, like Lombardia or Liège, Basson-Liège. I'd be happy to do those races, but I'm not deep down excited. When I started looking into Strata, I was like, I'm excited. This race looks crazy. It looks hard, but I think in a good way. And that's what I want to talk to you about because you've not only raced Strata three times. Yeah, I think so, yeah. But you've also actually finished top 10 there. It's a race that you've found that suits you. You're a, you're a classics man as, as anyway, but now this is slightly different with a few more climbs, and that's what I want to speak to you about. But before we actually get into Strata, I want to explain to people who don't exactly know the race as well as you, maybe a bit like me. And I started doing a bit of research, and this race isn't that old. It's only been around since 2007. And actually, if anyone's heard of another race or another ride called Oroika, that is a ride that started in 97 and it's a ride that sort of just goes through the Chianti region on these really old bikes. Just sounds like a fun piss up, really. It really does. <laughs> yeah. sound, it sounds hard because you've got to have yeah. these traditional old bikes and they're very strict on the rules. And as the story goes, this this ride is like a big Grand Fondo, a great Grand Fondo. Any cycling fan would know this race or ride. And it's, it's limited numbers, so it's hard to get into. You stop along, you drink Chianti, you drink great, yeah, great food. food. We really should lock it in one year. We should do it. Yeah. Anyway, this race, as the story goes, this race, decide, this ride decided, let's put a race on the day before. So in 2007, the first edition was in October, and Kloblinev won that, Alexander Kloblinev, a Russian. And it wasn't as big as it was now. But I think it got traction from that first year and RCS, the Italian yeah. organizing um, race company, yeah. <laughs> went, hang on, this is like a classic. If we want to get the biggest riders there, let's move it to March. Yep. So they moved it to March where it's ever been since. The next year, Fabian Cancellara won it, who's won it then since three times. It's a crazy race that runs right through the Chianti region, through all the beautiful wine region, which I think is going to be crazy doing it in hot summer now. Yeah, you're going to have to keep your eyes on the road. You know? You'll be <laughs> looking around and go, oh, I'm going to come back to that place. So. Well, that reminds me of like Paris-Nice when we go yeah. through like Beaujolais and True. You know, yeah. Burgundy and stuff. I'm like, oh, this is Burgundy. Oh, wow. Shit, front wheel. Yeah. <laughs> but... It is about 180K, 184K, so it's not super long, which is slightly different to the other classics, which I think I really like. It's also got 11 sectors, and it's on, well, Strata Bianchi means white roads. Um, So they call it the white roads. It's gravel. It's got 11 sectors, 63K of gravel, and the two longest sectors are 11K and 9.5K. So a little bit different to Roubaix, because Roubaix, sort of the longest sector is about 3.5K. Yeah. And now what I want to ask you is, 
What's it like? Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. To, I'm doing the comparison to Roubaix because it's the only thing I can sort of think of. And people have said, I've read, it's a combination between Roubaix and Flanders on dirt roads. Yeah, I, I reckon you'd be quite right in saying that. My first experience with Strata Bianchi was actually Neil Stevens calling me a couple of weeks before and uh, not even, maybe two weeks before. And he was like, G'day, Durbo. How you going, mate? And I'm like, hey, Neil, how are you? I was maybe second or third year pro and he's like you know you're a bit of a classics rider um you looked at this strata race i reckon we're going to take you to that and i was like oh i haven't really looked at it but yeah looks pretty hard you know he's just like yeah i reckon we'll let's go for it make you leader and this is the first sort of race i was like what so i was like doing my research you know i mean i'd I'd always watched it you know, I'd always watch you know cancellar winning and all this stuff but i always just thought it was more an ardennes Sort of classic. I, I thought it was super you hilly. Know, you know, yeah. like, and it is hilly. But the only thing I would I would say was the the riders that punch out out of the saddle. You know, your Gilles Bears, your Val Verdes, your um, Kutowski goes between the both. But these sort of guys that are more climbing as climbing esque, they get out of the they get out of the saddle and they power away. But in in uh, Strada Bianchi, you ha- you have to stay in the saddle ninety percent of the time. Because your back wheel slips. Mm. So what ends up happening is it sort of turns it into more of a cobble aspect. You know, you wouldn't get out of your saddle on the Quaramont or the Pattersburg because your front wheel, your back wheel's bouncing all over the place and you can't actually get power out. So what ends up happening is you get this climber who wants to just take off on this really steep climb like you normally would on a paved road. It doesn't happen. Mm. So a big guy pushing back in the saddle, keeping weight on the back wheel... He's not getting the slip and he's actually getting power through the bike to generate himself up the hill. But what ends up happening was the the climbers, they want to get out of their saddle, but their back wheel is sliding everywhere, so they have to sit down. Uh, I feel like it sort of brings the pack together. Mm. And that's why you'll see guys like Fabian Cancellara winning it. And then you'll see, I mean, Al Philip wins everything. But, well, you I know, saw <laughs> Pinot. Pinot up there. Yes, yeah. exactly. Uh, Bardet has yeah. a good good there Tom Dumoulin's been up there yeah. and, you know that sort of climbing that might more suit a Ardennes so when I first arrived there I was I didn't really quite know what to expect but I loved it from the mm. first from the first time I did it, I was like wow this is this is a race that you got to forget about the amount of meters of climbing it does suit a classic rider and the best thing about it is that you're I feel like you're into the classics mindset from kilometer zero where there is generally when you you see the monuments like flanders or roubaix or there is this sort of 100k 80k worth of just normal roads that kind of frustrates you you can lose your race there they're by no means easy no you, means easy you're but sitting in there waiting for the big stuff it's sort of waiting and there's nervous energy and there's it's still hard as hell. But you got to sit in position, but you don't want to waste too much energy. Yeah. You, know, you sort of sit in the back. You don't want to be at the back and, you know, all that sort of bullets you're using. But what I find with Strata Bianchi is you're literally just from 17K in, you hit the first gravel section and you're in. Mm. 185K, boom. And you, 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 you don't even remember. You literally arrive at the finish you're like, wow, that, that went like a... Warp speed, more or less, because you just sector, 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 sector. So, Tell me about some of the sectors then, because you spoke about some of the steeper stuff, but there is also some downhill stuff as well. There's some flat stuff. It's quite windy, you said. If you can try and imagine it, because I've seen some photos, but generally around March, there's been a bit of rain, so most of that dust is settled. 
It can get quite dusty there. Can you imagine it now in the middle of summer where they're probably in the Canty region, probably haven't had much rain for a long time. Is the dust going to be an element? Yeah, Yeah, I think so. Mm. Yeah. It's going to be, if you're in the front, you're going to be okay. But if you're going to be not too far back, you're not going to be able to see. Mm. Because the wind, you literally run a ridge for most of the gravel sections. You sort of climb up and then you sort of dip down and climb up and dip down. And the wind can hit you from either side. And some of the strata bankers I've done have horrific wind where guys have been blown completely off the road. So if you add that with really dry, and I think it's going to be really hot. I've heard, you know, some 30 plus degree mm. temperatures over the weekend for Strata Bianchi. Mm. The dust is going to be blowing up. And if you're coming back from punctures through the cars, it's going to be pretty hard to see. So, What about um, technical stuff? What do you do for your bike? Uh, run a classic setup. So 28s. Same same tyres you run for Flanders Roubaix. Or yeah. not Roubaix. Maybe not Roubaix, but similar to Flanders. Yeah. Because oh. there is a lot of, obviously, paved road. But what about pressure? Yeah, I'd run the same as Flanders, I reckon. Really? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's some of the holes are Yeah, but also gnarly. I guess you want that grip on those descents. Because I, I heard someone saying, when I was doing a little bit of research about this, you know, they alluded to that one stage in the Giro that they had of Strata Bianchi. Oh, the, the one, Cadell one. Cadell one. Yeah, they said yeah. the reason why he won, well, one of the reasons was on the descents in the wet, he had the mountain bike skills and was able to just get distance on those descents. Can you imagine that? Wow, yeah. Well, no, can you imagine that skill helping you? Oh, big time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and you see the, the guys that are good in that race have a ridiculous amount of skill mm. in terms of handling their bike. Like, it, it is different to... In different to another race, you're using a lot more rear brake mm. because you know you grab a handful of front brake on gravel and you lose your front wheel. You're definitely down, but on a downhill on the gravel, you're sort of using more feathering your back brake because you can always slide your back wheel mm. and still keep it up if you know what I mean. <laughs> but you can always it's sort of like a mountain bike. So <laughs> it's like a BMX race. Yeah, but you are sliding your back wheel sometimes, you know. Mm. Um, and also the the turning needs to be a lot more. Uh, gradual than what you would do on the road you sort of come around the corner you just turn left you know but if you do that you're going to wash out your front wheel so mm. there is that element and then like i said with the climbing you got to be sitting back in your saddle putting as much pressure on your back wheel so your back wheel is getting traction on mm. some of this gravel and if it's going to be dry you're going to get some lot of slippage you know seated accelerations when you see those attacks going which is the difference you're going exactly. to have a big ass huge ass Looks like, like I'm... You're going to be in your I'm, element, bro. Element there, mate. <laughs> I think you really enjoy it, to be honest. Like, other than probably kilometre zero, it's downhill and it's pretty gnarly. But after that, it's a, it's a pretty beautiful race. And I feel like it's one of the most beautiful regions in, in the world, more or less. And it's, you know, you, you can't buy history, um, but it definitely has a place that should be, you know, for long term, uh, nearly a monument, I reckon. Mm. Yeah, well, we're going to do a little, in a couple of days' time, um, we're going to do a little preparation. This is something you spoke to me about because you've done it in the past. We're just going to, well, I'm lucky enough that I've got the service course close by, so I'm going to put my tyres in that oh, I'm going to ride. You are, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then we're going to try and do a bit of a gravel sort of section because even though we've been doing a bit of gravel on sort of cross bikes, I think there's something so different about doing it on a road tire because like you said you've got to allow for that turn and things like that that'd be fun gonna go out on the on the gravel in a couple you're of days the, you're the route designer so where are we going mitch <laughs> well 
I shouldn't have been the route designer because, no. like, I've never ridden Strata, so how would I know? Yeah, you're the gravel man, so how far are we doing? Sort of 120k worth of gravel, are we? No. Generally, when you do a loop with Mitch, there you you've got to add an extra hour or two. You know, sort of the four hour loop that we do in six. You know, that's the sort of one normally. <laughs> Anyway, all right. Well, then that is our Strata preview and we're going to touch base um, for the next podcast. I'm going to do a on-road diary of Strata Bianchi and Milan San Remo and talk about racing again, potentially some weird moments with COVID and getting back. I'm almost guaranteed. Plus the actual races. I'm really intrigued to give my reaction to my first time on Strata. Do you have a um, an outside? Because this is the funny thing going to races now with no form guide. So can you throw out a um, a winner from the top of your hat? Mm. I'd like to say myself, but you know, <laughs> I'm going to say podium for you. Oh wow! Shit! Thanks, mate. <laughs> I, with the work we've been doing, with the love for the race, and with, I think our Australian mentality coming off a pre-season we race nationals our first race true so I'm not saying anything against Europeans but we're sort of used to that we're used to doing a whole prep and then doing our hardest race one of our hardest races of the year the first race so that's going to work in your element you know the race you love the race you've been top 10 there so you you're ready for that and beyond that I actually don't know I don't know who's doing it I'm I'm the same eh? I mean your teammate Simon Clark actually would he's yes. always done quite well in and Australia. again the same theory he knows how to prepare exactly for Australian yeah so there's podium that's the second one on the podium yeah it's just two Aussies <laughs> and um Kutowski, is he riding I wonder yeah that's the thing we need to know the start list but yeah I mean he's won it twice so if there's one person that wants to win it three times to pair you know Cancellara's record Walt Van Aert oh yes yeah, that's, that's my podium. Hard to go past. I'm going to put you three in there. I've got yeah. box trifecta, so I can have you in any position. Yep. You three. All right, there we go. Done. Are you agreeing with me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I reckon. <laughs> yeah, maybe throw Vanderpoel in there because you just don't know what's with that guy. <laughs> second part of this podcast is mailbag let's get into it right alrighty so we've got some questions here that everyone sent in we haven't been able to get through all of them so we've just done a little selection um, my producer behind the scenes Lara has made the the cut so anyone who didn't make the cut send your complaints into Lara <laughs> she's very stiff on the questions no it's Can't great cruel. <laughs> we can only get through so many um, alright so William's our first question What's the general feeling among riders with the return to racing? Uh, I feel like the general feel with among riders is, like I said before, not knowing where they're at. Um, no one's ever had to do a pre-season in July. And I guess it's just more, you can you can get the numbers, the feedback and the power meters, you can get the numbers and the, the feedback from the coach and the team, etc. But you, you just don't know until the, court, the curtain opens and you you have to perform and that's it i think also from our team it's been pretty hard um and i'm sure you're the same is 
I guess you're wondering also about selection mm. because previous to now there was races, you're in a rough selection, then you did a good race and you got selected for that race. But most of the teams have had to make their selections from training or just from previous races or who you are. And you know, there's races and there's trainers also. So yeah. there's guys doing the, all the one percenters in training, but then you know, there's a, the riders out that, that lift that 20% when they go to a race. So, yeah, it's, it, I, I just feel like it's like everyone in the world, there's a sense of unknown and um, anxiety around that un, unknownness. But I think it's just as soon as the first race gets underway, um, it's going to be stressful out there and it's going to be a lot of, um, well, also excitement too. Hmm. You know, there's that fear and excitement. They're both the same level. You can either choose fear or choose excitement, but they're, they're both the same emotion more or less. You just choose which one you want, positive or negative. So for me, it's going to be hopefully more excitement than fear. And mm. um, yeah, I'm looking forward to the to, to, to the weekend more or less. I think also I was just thinking about it then. Weirdly, and this is probably something someone who's retired can tell me a little bit more about, is that I'm looking forward to packing the suitcase again. I'm looking forward to going through the, the routine of how we travel. You know, get to the race and you, you sleep with your... Well, we're not going to be with roommates but you chat to your teammate, you get ready for the race, all the little intricate things we normally do. And to a degree, I felt cut off from that. And mm. that's, I guess, what life's going to be like when you retire. And I was like, wow, yeah, I do actually miss that routine. Um, it's part of your family too, your mm. team. You spend so much time with them and you don't spend that much time anymore. So, because you haven't seen them. So, just be nice, you know, see your bus driver, your, mm. your masseuse, your, you know, your director and you right. know, all the other teammates and stuff. By, well, we're flying out Wednesday, so by Thursday afternoon, you'll be like, yep, what day are we heading back? <laughs> Get the first flight out Saturday, eh? Yeah, I'm going to upgrade. I'm just getting that yeah. flight. I'm Sorry, gonna... boys, I'm out. Headphones on. <laughs> All right, second question. What's the thing about racing, races you've missed the most and the least? This is from Nathan. Do you want to go this one? Thing I've missed the most? Probably you explained it just before. Well, no, I think no. this is a double-edged sword. The thing I hate the most is the thing I've missed the most, is the pressure. Okay. Because I, I, I spoke to you about this today out riding, and we had this a little bit in training the other day. I was almost getting dropped, and I forced myself to stay on. This is Mike Woods up a climb, coming to Andorra. It was really hard. I thought, oh, i got to stay on. It was this mental battle. I can't get dropped. I could have just got dropped, but I wanted to play the game. Ultimately, I was still in my comfort zone. No one would have cared if I got dropped, so it was up to me. But I think I've missed that. I've missed that competitive side maybe, yeah the competitive and also that that pressure that you mm. either put on yourself or the team puts on you or whoever puts on you you hate it but ultimately you love it that's what racing is and that's what i've missed that i'm going to be on the start line i'm going to be in stride i'm be like oh God, i hate this why do you ever want to be back here i hate this race <laughs> i want to get out of here i went oh, 180 four hours i'll be in the bus so who cares but as soon as i'm in the bus and i'll be like oh i can't wait for next year <laughs> yeah 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 that's what I probably missed. Yeah. Because oh, training's not the same. It's definitely not the same. Adrenaline oh. junkies in the end, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm exactly the same. Yeah. If you could have picked any race to be your first race back, what would it have been, Charlie? Counselor Classic to an under, maybe. <laughs> it's not a bad one, is just it? Just a normal season, maybe, you know? Yeah. Just starting out, no real pressure, checking the wheels, seeing how the bike feels in a bunch with uh, 180 guys and having some moment where you can sort of slink back and go, how was your lockdown and how are you and this and that. But I know Strata Bianchi is going to be like, 
yep, good to see you, mate, but <laughs> take you into that corner or I'm going to beat you there or get out of my way, you know, that sort of element of stress. So, um, yeah, Stradabianchi wouldn't be my first. I love the race, but it wouldn't be my first comeback, no way. Just so you can find your legs too and be like, oh, geez, I'm glad I got that out of the yeah. way because <laughs> next week's Strata. Yeah, yeah. And now you're going to be in Strata going, probably wouldn't have mind having a bit of a hit out yesterday. Yeah. We're blocked. <laughs> too late now. Yeah. So it's not my first choice, just purely because of the, as we spoke about, all the riders are missing what you described before. Mm. They're missing that element of pressure and performance and achievement and, and trying to go for it and they've been working really hard for so long and I feel it's just going to be like this pressure valve release when the first race starts and generally that means higher level of stress like first stage of the Tour de France level or opening weekend you know mm. so opening weekend is maybe more sketchy than Tour of Flanders mm. because definitely. Of, it definitely is you know so um, yeah. I, I would almost go I don't know if I fully agree on this but I'm Tactically saying, I would like to do Roubaix first oh, because I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, yeah, but do you know what I mean? Still. Like, I'm getting the feeling that we we might be lucky because we've got some racing, and then shit's going to hit the fan, mm. and maybe no more racing will happen. Mm. And if that's the case, you want to do the best race of the year. For me, <laughs> Roubaix. Yeah, true. True. It'd be hell, but yeah. you know what? At least I got Roubaix in this year. Pick one day you can have when you can have all your friends around. Oh, well, I guess it's Christmas then. Yeah. I'll pick Christmas. You're like, well, I'll pick the 7th of July. Like, what is that day? <laughs> all right, let's go to the next question. This is from uh, Kick Maestro. The best thing about Milan San Remo is the excitement and that most types of riders can win it. You've got heavy sprinters like Christoph on one end and climbers like Nibley on the other with Kiatowski and Alaphilippe in between. But what types of riders does Strata Bianchi suit? I think we already answered this question. Yeah. You really you really put hit the nail on the head and you actually all those riders right there can win Strata. Yeah. Climber, classics. It's just oh, yeah, it's a- and that's a little bit like we've got San Remo Strata together. The same rider could win both those races. That's true, actually. And, but yeah. yet, yet again, you could have opposite ends of the spectrum, winning one week and the next week the other one. Yeah. Um, I I'm think that not- happened. Alphalit won both, no? Did he? I think he won Strata and San Remo. Same year or he yeah, just same has? Year. There we go. So, I'm not 100% sure on that, but I'm pretty sure. All right, next question. Chasing Muses. Are gravel sectors feared or something to look forward to? bit of both yeah. they can be a bit sort of I, I guess a lot of the the it's like like the pressure moves into that sector you know like obviously that's where the race really kicks off so leading into the sectors there is a lot of um i think it's very similar to like the classics you know you you run into the quaramont etc like that's probably the most stress. Mm. The sector itself is not that stressful because by the time you've got there, hard. it's just hard. Yeah. And if you're strong enough, you're there. Yeah. If you're not. And yeah. actually, to a degree, not that I'm like an awesome power man, but I found it harder in Roubaix, like you said before. When we finally got on the sector, I was like, oh, God, I can move up a bit now. Yeah, you exactly. Know? Yeah, I, I can yeah. kick my way through. I can move up 10, 15 wheels. Before the sector... If I wanted to move up 10, 15 wheels, I was like ending my race type effort. It's difficult because the guys that do that, they they arrive in sector maybe top 10, but they're so 
finger that yeah. they can't do anything anyway the reason you're going past them is just because they've done su- it's such an effort to make it in the first 10 wheels into those crucial mm. sections it's a gamble you're like do I end my race getting into top 10 sit back about top 30 and just move away through alright next one Robert you and your guests have previously talked about strategic s- spots in the spring classics where every team is trying to be the first in the into the turn or cobble section is the same for strata. What are the main sectors sections you're looking for? For me personally, there's two major sectors. There is a lot of racing to be had prior. So it's like the classics, you know, you sort of get through that sector, get through that sector, get through that sector, and then you're like, right, now the Quaramont is coming or uh, Arenberg in Roubaix. It's still so far from the finish, but it's so important and so crucial. So in Strata Bianchi, it, I think it comes at about 110, 112K. It's um, San Martino. Um, that's the only word. I, the only word I don't know if it's exactly the right name for it, but San Martino is the is the road that we we go on, and um, that is like a pretty crucial moment. It's not the the end selection, but it's the first selection. Mm. Big road, you run into it, go over a footbridge, and then you sort of hit this section, and it's probably about nine k. I think it's the second, uh, yeah the second one that you described here 9.5k and you sort of you hit it and shit goes to the fan there after the sector there's a little bit of a respite but it's not too much and then you go into um, Mont Saint Marie hmm. and that's the hardest sector hmm. that's like 11k lots of climbs in it and then after that wherever you are more or less is where you will race to the finish hmm. So that's those, those are the two key sectors, I feel. This is from Brendan. If you could fit any width of tyre into your bike, what would you use for strata? And also, Simon's asked a similar question, so answer these two. What tyre width and gearing do you go for? We sort of answered this already, 28th, but do you change your gearing? Uh, no, not really. Yeah, you go pretty small. You, you what, go like 30, 30 on the rear? 30 on the rear, maybe a 36 on the front, maybe. It's pretty steep, but... Bigger the better, you're the same, mate. Yeah. <laughs> Bigger gearing. Yeah. yeah. Well, I spoke to Sam Bewley the other day and he was saying, I was asking him, because I normally have a 54 chainring on my bike and up in Andorra, I've got it compact on with a 53 and a 53.34. And I was like, do I keep the 53 on? Is there any fast sectors that I need the 54 for? And he goes, well, coming into some of those sectors, we're going pretty quick. He goes, I probably wouldn't mind the 50, uh, 34 for the climbs. And I was like, wow, that's that steep. He goes, no, nah, probably a 36, 30 is enough. Mm. You think? Yeah, I yeah. think so, yeah. How do neutral service vehicles work with the variety of wheels and disc brakes and pedal options? Or do you always wait for team cars? Have you ever got anything from a neutral service? I've got I a have wheel once, in Roubaix. That's probably the only race that you really, really need it. Yeah, because you're so far away from everything, aren't you? It's really... And I feel like any other race, if you can't get your team car... There's two team cars normally. Like, you so. just wait for it or yeah. you get... You just pull out. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds weird. Like, but, like... Okay. For a one-day race, sure. Yeah, for a yeah, one-day yeah. race. You're I mean, out of the race anyway by Yeah, you're point. out of the race so you've far. Had to wait. Yeah. And if, you're, if you need it, like, unless, like... I'm thinking of like Heyman now, a few years ago. Mm. He had to get it in Roubaix 
because he was still in the front of Roubaix. He needed that wheel right away then. I don't know why our car wasn't there, stuck back from some of the sector. He got the neutral spares, front wheel, and actually the front wheel folded on him. Yeah, the wheel folded, yeah. Stage race, I can't see why you would ever need it in a stage race. Like, you would just wait. Wouldn't you? Yeah, I think I think it's the only thing you would decide to do is it, it, within the gap. So, for example, it's not a minute gap or thirty second gap, or the commissaire hasn't deemed that it's okay for your team car to go up behind you, and you're racing for the win with kilometre to go, mm. and there's a a bike on the roof. Then you what situ- what broke your chain? Yeah, something like that. I think more or less anything else you could probably ride it a k to go. Yeah, if I had a k to go flat tire you just ride a flat tire true unless the gap was so big yeah yeah you just okay I'll just change it well your car's gonna be there yeah oh but you mean if it's inside 30 seconds inside 30 seconds well you just ride a flat tire then you would because you get caught anyway if you stopped yeah yeah don't actually you know probably myth maybe we don't actually use the neutral spares as often as people think Um, they Mm. are there for like a last minute decision or last minute case like we are playing with Heyman but they're not really used. You wait for your car. Yeah. I got caught once in um, True California. It was such a situation where we didn't have enough cars to follow. And I didn't have an organizational car. I can't remember why, but I just had no one behind me. And I punch it. And so I was just there. I had no wheels in this time trial. And I had to flag down the next team car. He drove straight past. Oh, no and then way. The, the, the two team cars later, I flagged him down. He just gave me a wheel. It was the wrong... It was a rear wheel. It was the wrong... Cassette oh, no, or... I remember. It was BMC was the car that was behind me. But they were using these really, really big tires for their time trials. Oh, yeah, That yeah. didn't fit in my frame. So, he's like, I'm sorry, dude. I can't. I'm going to have to keep going. So, he just left me there. And the next car that gave me was like SRAM and Will Shimano. I just rode a SRAM cassette to the just end. Just mashing it all the way. I was furious at the end. I was like, I can't believe I didn't even have a car behind me. So neutral spares would have helped me out that day. Yeah. All right. Do pros practice riding on gravel? If so, what kind of things do you do? This is from the American Club. Well, I think we said this. The rear brake, sitting back in the saddle. But do pros practice riding on gravel? Uh, I think they do, yeah. I don't think before the last sort of five years. No, probably not. No, no, I think we've actually used it as part of our training now with the cross bikes and that whole gravel scene that's been obviously a lot more popular now. and we've discovered so many more gravel roads here in Girona and, and around. But yeah, like you said, probably the last five years. It's been I think. More popular. I think also that has helped for it not to be frowned upon. So like back in the True. back in the day, like I would say, like if you went out on gravel, people were like what? You rode your road bike on dirt roads? Are you Is kidding me? Disrespect? Are you, are you an idiot? <laughs> yeah. And now I'd be like, oh, you're sick. You didn't go on a dirt road. Yeah. Are you an idiot? <laughs> <laughs> Why is your bike not dirty? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Next one's from Nathan. He sent a few in. Nath. Tips for cornering on rough services like strata bianchi or gravel. Oh, we touched on that before. Front brake only. Yep. As hard as you can. Like, as soon as you come, they want to grab your front brake. Like, even if you get a little bit of air at the back, that's perfect. <laughs> not no, on the front. Not on the front. Most, well, you can when you go on a straight line, but 
when you're at the coming into the corner or whatever, you, you really want to be on your back because if you do slide, you can handle your back wheel, but your front wheel is uh, is the main main one you want to keep up. To be honest, I think also especially with cross riding, and I'm definitely not a cross expert, but something I've worked out over the years is finding that limit on your tire pressure, the limit to getting pinch flats, and the limit to feeling a good amount of grip. Um, too hard, you just slip out like road tires, and too soft, you get pinch flats. So you got to really test that out because you really do notice that when you think, oh, this is good, you come down a bit more, you're like, wow, this has got a hell of a lot more grip. Shit loads, yeah. 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 Less the better most of the time. Uh, Atlanta Roll Air, does the course terrain actually favor cross riders and those who ride more gravel or is it just hype? No, it's true because if you see like Walt Van Aert's first outing at Strata, I think he was third or fourth. You know, so, I mean, obviously, you, you don't rock up to your first classic and run nearly a podium, do you? So, it obviously had a, uh, before Walt Art was, he was still in Veranda Williams, I think. So, um, yeah, it does. And we mentioned also Cadell, you know. Yeah. World it, champion exactly. mountain bike rider. Yep. Fuslane was second mountain biker. There you yeah, go. So. Has Hagee ridden Strata? Yes. Yep. To go all right? Yeah, yeah. Good. Well, he's, he was Jack Hague, that ne- is. Neo Pro. So yeah, I think he would be probably in the future a guy to watch in, in that race. I feel yeah. He's an ex mountain biker. Yeah. What about Hassey, Nathan Hass? Potentially. Yeah. I wouldn't know, but potentially. Yeah. So this is from Pedling Squares. It seems most pros argue that Strata would be considered a monument if it weren't for its history. Do you feel this way? And if so, what makes you feel? What makes it feel like a monument? Let me just touch on that. Like, I think there's an element of that feel of it for a monument, but I think what I love about the monuments is they're actually from... History. History. Yeah. You know, and we were speaking about this the other day, you know, some races could be, you know, monument, monuments as well, but they've got to have that history. But do you think also there is that feel of it? Like, it's it's just like a true sort of classic race, yeah? For sure, Yeah. yeah. I think, I think with a classic race, you need that um, sense of uh, community behind it. And where you start in the piazza in um, Siena, you know, I mean, this, this COVID time is going to be different, but normally it's, you know, packed. You can't move. There's people there. They're really behind it. That whole region is really behind the race. All on the road, there's heaps of fans. And you climb up and it's such an epic finish, you know, up in Siena. Mm. The, you know, the walls of Siena, you sort of, come into it and there's it's kind of like this coliseum aspect to it and that's what you like a, a velodrome in roubaix finish you mm. know like it doesn't have the history i agree but i feel like it won't be that long well we already are talking about it now but i mean maybe in 50 years time 100 percent is a monument but it still needs history mm. still needs tales tales of this race and that race and now we can talk about past winners and Cancellara winning it and Kolbnev winning it and you know whoever winning it you need that sort of history behind it to to describe like oh that year that wind blew off people that rained mm. here etc so without that I feel like that's why you can't call it a monument yet mm. good call will this is from Dan now will having some races without a crowd impact on you as a rider yeah, like, what do you think? I think it's sad because in, uh, like, for, for me personally, I never, like, ride in front of a crowd 
that's not why I did cycling, you know, for example, to, to people to cheer me on. But I think we will be naive to think that it won't make a difference because I guess it was sort of always there. Mm. You know, when you race the big races, the classics, the tour, the Australian Yankee, all that, you always had the crowd there anyway. So you sort of didn't really think about it much. You're just like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's people cheering, and but I've got to, like, focus on the race. But I reckon it's going to be quite noticeable when you're out there pushing as hard as you can in silence. Mm. <laughs> you know, if you're coming up to the Siena up that climb, yeah. like I explained before, and it's no, no one there. there, well, you're going to be like, wow, shit, this actually does make a difference. Well, you know? I do I, – I'm trying to think back to races, like, for instance, in Belgium – you use a lot of the climbs that are from Flanders and a lot from like E3 or whatever, but you do them in other races. Mm. And you go up these climbs without anyone there in a race or in training. You know, like good example is when we go up um, Tyneberg. You know, the Tyneberg is Tom Boonen's hill. It's so packed there. It's like tunnel vision, yet... When you and I trained up there together, mm. you grab the gutter and you go up there and you have a bit of a joke. But I actually, I'm just thinking about it now. One thing that sort of happens to me is you do go tunnel vision anyway. And I don't notice the crowd when I'm racing mm. because I'm just doing what I need to do. And actually, when I think, when I'm actually just thinking back to when you and I last reconned the Timeberg together mm. and we fought for the gutter and I was trying to drop you and you were trying to hang on. For me, <laughs> and I dropped you. <laughs> For me, there wasn't much difference to a race in that moment because, like, I was just feeling the same thing. I was like so focused on that climb. I was so focused to try and get that gutter, watching the watching the cobbles, doing my thing, trying to stay in the seat, trying to balance out of the seat, and the crowd wasn't there. And True. it was a cold Saturday afternoon or whatever it was, Friday afternoon, and yet. Did I feel like it was different different or depressing or mm. not as inspiring? No. No. Did you? No, no, not at all. But I see what you're saying. Yeah. I'm just trying to imagine it now. I'm like, I'm trying to imagine what it's like for those soccer players playing at the moment. That would be slightly weird, wouldn't it? But would it? Well, I think- I don't know. I'm just thinking maybe it isn't. Maybe but, it, like when but, you're out yeah. of the race and you're dropped and you're riding up the climb, you're like, whoa, holy shit, this busy up here. But, but if you're yeah. in the race, you're just like, if you've got the riders around you, we're in the moment. We're like, yeah, get off me. You know what? Let's get up. I've got to get to the front. Where are you, Durbo? Come on, mate. Get up here. Yeah. And you're still in that moment. Durbo, get up here. <laughs> I'm at the back. <laughs> you but, know, but you know what yeah, I mean? Like, yeah, I know what you mean. But if you were to have um, headphones in with crowd full noise in your head, you'd still be tunnel vision. But the exhausting aspect of... Your everything is heightened because a crowd is there. Like I know your tunnel vision doesn't really change much for you, but I feel like there is another element of adrenaline or well, let me emotion. This- you know that that w- would be there. You can't just turn the crowd off. It's still there. You still yeah. hear the noise, but you can't like. You Does know, it lift you? Yeah, I don't know if it lifts me. I think it's just another That's what element. I think, yeah, because like, a good example is when I was doing Swift. Hmm. My wife thought it'd be a great idea to bring the kids in and cheer me. It was the worst thing in the world. I was just like, I was in the, I was in the Ruby. So Ruby was just like no drafting, no nothing. It was just like all out, an hour time trial. I was so deep in the red with like 20 minutes to go. And then 
Liddy came with the kids. Like, come on, go, Dad. And I was just like, yeah, get out, get out of here. Because I was just, I was in my, I knew what I had to do. I just didn't need any cheering. It, it just distracted me. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I know what you mean. It doesn't necessarily lift everyone. I think if you're internally motivated, stuff like a crowd's going to make a massive difference. Yeah. yeah, interesting question. Glenn, when training away from your team, how do you keep your bike maintained? Do you do this yourself or do you have local mechanics? Are there any tips in keeping important parts clean when riding so much? Oh, just yourself most of the time, Matthew. I mean, we, you have your service course here, but you sort of don't really rely on it. We've grown up doing our own bike things for a while now, so you can pretty much keep it keep it uh, clean yourself. Um, I actually roll through the car wash every now and then and give it a blast down. And then on the other occasion, I'll take it out for a good degrees and all that sort of maintenance and stuff. But any major problems, you we do have um, people in Girona that can help. Mm. But, um, I mean, it's important, but I kind of always use the analogy with your training bike and your race bike. It's uh, If you were to have that car that you drove to work every day and you just treat it with no respect, it's like a chips on the bottom of the car, there's a big M in there, you sort of doesn't really clean it, but it sort of doesn't really work. Sometimes it doesn't start. I hate to say, but that's kind of like my training bike <laughs> and then <laughs> treat it with no respect. And then you, you pull your uh, Sunday car out, which is your race car, which is uh, immaculate, you know? Yeah. I do like though, I do like that theory, but I sort of got into the habit, Zach Dempster got me into this habit of cleaning your bike on the last day before the rest day. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I always do that now. Not every rest day, but like if I have five days or once a week at least, I give it a clean because then you roll out the rest day, the bike's clean, doesn't have the week's worth of sweat and grime on it. And then you start the first because it doesn't get dirty on the recovery day. Then you start the first training day like, yeah, bike clean. Bike's clean. It's fast. It's good. It's a good And you, you sort of end the last block with the clean off. You're like, all right, let's just clean last week off. I like that. Yeah. And let's just start fresh. All right. Let's start that. This is from Pelecci. Did you get your weight goal? How do you guys lose weight so well while staying strong? I did. I did. I was trying to get to 74 and a half. I've still got a few days, but I weighed in yesterday and I was 74.6. So I was pretty happy. Good job, mate. Enjoy the seven beers now. Yep. (laughs) So I was pretty happy. Um, How do we lose weight and stay strong? Look, I think for me, it's the hours go up and we're training so much that there is that element of you are just, you got to fuel in order to train really well and you do start stripping weight because of the the hours. Um, A big difference for me from say lockdown and once I started training was I just started eating more appropriate to what I was doing opposed to just eating anything I saw. You know, I was still eating good quantities of food, but I would clean food you know i was like i need to get some good carbohydrates in for my ride and then when i wasn't training big then i would try and restrict what i was doing maybe have some salads maybe not as big on the carbohydrates you know um, and always watching how much fat fat i was sort of eating unnecessary kind of fat um look there's a there's a whole topic we can talk about this but that's a real general sort of scheme and obviously (laughs) trying to get those alcohol free days up you know Definitely trying to get them up to five or six days a week. Dervo? 
Uh, yeah, pretty much the same. Yeah, oh, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, yeah, and I feel like you, when you're when you you're in a training phase, your body can really hold on to some some fluid, and you can sort of see this not really seeing the weight shift. When you recover again, then you then you do. It, it, it's always a week or two delay, mm. and I think everyone wants instant um, gratification for what they're doing. You know, one week you restrict, and you really look after yourself, and by the end of the week you want to get on the scales two kilos lighter, and it doesn't really happen that way. But you know, in two weeks' time, that's where you'll see it all weeks' time. So, yeah, if you're trying to lose weight, <laughs> stay the course. It'll work. It'll happen, but uh, it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't. I always use the theory of. However long you let it loose for, it takes double the time to get it off. It's not a bad... Yeah, I've used that one before. You know what I mean? You're like, you know what? I had like three days just being a pig. It's yeah. going to take six days to get back to what I was at. If I had two weeks being shit, looks like I'm in for a month. <laughs> and yada, yada. Lockdown two months. So we've got a few <laughs> questions left. Bobby. So December, you'll be fine, eh? This is for you, Durbo. During a TT, where's your head at? Do you think about anything else other than the ride? Does your um, head wander? My head does want to wander, but um, I'm definitely trying to keep it on the, the job at hand. And what I mean by that is I break down the TT into uh, like small achievable segments. Um, and that might be, you know, monitoring your heart rate, monitoring your power, you know, uh, picking segments on the climb where you have to go hard and not hard and tuck and arrow and all these sort of words and cues that I use to just keep my mind on the current task. Because at the end of the day, like you start the TT, it's from A to B as fast as you can. And whatever after B happens will will be there. Like, you know, text message to your wife or call your parents or the result or what the team is, is doing or like whatever, next race, etc. That'll always happen after you get to the, mm. the target. And you, you, when you're getting in that pain element, um, when you're in that zone that they speak of, your body wants to get out of there. It mm. doesn't really want to be there. But you have to just sort of keep it calm, think at that, like, hey, this is what we're doing, this is what we're focusing on, really simplify it. So, yeah, your mind will take you elsewhere, Mm. But it's a good thing not to let it go there because that's when your performance starts to go down. Just really keep it simple. It sounds like to me, actually, if you've done any meditation yourself, that's very much what happens in meditation. You know, your mind's drifting off and you're thinking about, you know, afterwards I might, you know, go and, you know, get a coffee down the road. And you're like, mm. oh, hang on. What am I doing? Bang. Let's just concentrate on my breathing. Let's get back. Is that almost like what it's like for you? Exactly. And, if and do you yeah. notice, do you, are you aware when your mind's wandering? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and you're like back on time. Generally, when it happens, when you really start to really suffer, I can't do this. It's always it's really negative talk. You know, I can't do this. I can't hold the power, and I'm not sure. And oh, the training, or maybe I didn't eat enough carbohydrates last night. So how night, do you or, pull yourself out of that? It's literally just sort of dialing back and going, okay, maybe there's a moment, and it's with all within a couple of seconds. Yeah, you know, maybe there's a moment of like. What am I focusing on? Okay, I'm going to focus on my breathing. I'm going to focus on my cadence or my aero position. Richard just like slowing it all down and be like, okay, I'm getting, I'm, I'm sort of getting out of control. Breathe for a moment. Think about your pedal stroke going around. Think about your aero position. And before you know it, you're, you're already out of it. Mm. 
and you're actually it's funny you what start to come up again and then you're back where you were but it is that moment of freak out which is only a couple of seconds but you just need to if you continually go down that line are you always able to get out of it no 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 and I feel like that's just if you are, are you, generally just absolutely ruined are you aware though when you can't get out of it or you just you get to the end of the TT and go oh, oh yeah oh yeah I see now I was just in this I couldn't get out of it I wasn't recognising that moment today I think it's more like you can only do what you want it, you can do in the end of the day like we we as athletes love to push ourselves mm. and it's generally not too hard for us to push ourselves to the limit because we love doing that and that's what we love to do so if your body's going nah like I, like I really can't and, you, and you, you calm it down and you go and you push again and you go and you sometimes you gotta you gotta sort of call it and go alright this is all I've got to give today but I'm gonna give 100% of what this is hmm. doesn't mean you have an amazing result but like I always find this when you're doing a TT during a grand tour you know some days you rock up and your legs are amazing sometimes they don't they're, they're awful but you're like well this is actually all I've got today so take the pressure off yourself not like beating yourself up during the tt actually just go right this is all i've got to deal with today i want to get the maximum amount of what i've got now and then then actually whatever's a bonus you're actually literally just taking the pressure off and going ah but it's pretty big to do that because whatever how you're making it sound quite easy because often there's you know there's a lot more there's not many times we're in a situation where you can just relieve the pressure and be happy with it no what about these times you've prepared for something, it's just not happening, and how do you then go, you know what, it'll be what it'll be today. You're like, well, no, there's way too much on the line for that. I can't just be what it'll be what it'll be. This is what I'm here to win, you know, like, so yeah. how do you do that internal battle? And that's, and that's what the, the, the absolute brutal aspect of time trialing is. Being okay to push yourself to the limit, and you generally, whatever you can do in that time is what you can do and you, you finish and then hindsight comes in hmm. and starts to lurk and that's that's when it becomes difficult to handle because you've literally pushed yourself as much as you can you haven't given in because you've finished you can see the picture of you crossing the line and your face is just like empty you know and then you go well did I give it all mm. and you're like well yes you did look like that's it that's the result you got that's the and that, that that that's probably the hardest thing is when you finish and you don't necessarily get to where you want to do. And then that's where you have to live with that and go, okay, move on. How are we going to do it? Let's try and work out maybe my lead up beforehand. And then you start to break down the ride. And I'm getting better and better at that over the years. Because during the ride, you can definitely, like I said, you can sort of go, this is what I've got today. I'm going to get it all out and I'll finish. And you're proud of your effort because you got it all out regardless if that's 30th 50th first whatever or held the watts or didn't whatever and then you finish up okay well done but then it's when you start to slide further and further down the results sheet because you think you've given it all and you're like ah, this is hard to take it's hard to take it's hard to take hard to take then you start to analyze and start to get out and all that sort of stuff mm. but then you, you you just have to pull yourself up and i think you're getting better at that yeah interesting all right we've got a couple left how do I celebrate an EF win with those Tuscan roads docker style? Oh, interesting. Well, Doing my thumb in the mouth, the rock, like the... 
Could be just like opening a can. <laughs> yeah. You know, it could be like, remember the old solo ad? Yeah. Man can, suck it down fast. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that wouldn't be too bad, That's would it? actually not bad, yeah. Well, just have a like, you know how he held the dummy in his pocket, Sastra? Yes. He had the dummy in his pocket the whole Tour de France stage and then pulled it out and put the dummy in his mouth. Like, could, could I have potentially a can of VB in there? Yeah. Maybe you just want to like slightly empty. So like or go little- back to the car. <laughs> just before the Sienna con. <laughs> good, good luck. <laughs> Which is better? Chianti Classico or Brunello di Monta... Come on. Pulcinino. Can you say it? Montepulciano. Yeah. I'm Chianti. Yeah. Nah, I think I want to go Montepulciano. Yeah? Yeah. Sometimes it can be a bit um, too heavy tannins. I sometimes find with the candy. Depending what we're having, yeah. pizza. True. Both great though. Let's just agree to disagree. Let's agree to disagree. And on that note, guys, thank you very much, um, and we'll check in with you after um, these coming races. Derps, good luck. Thanks for coming on the pod again. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. And um, yeah, you too. Good luck in your first rider. Cheers. Cheers. Well, there we have it. I guess you probably felt like you were out on a ride with Durbo and I. He's a really good mate, like I said. And I really loved picking his brain at the end there about his time trial head because I don't know if you picked up on that, but I was trying to take some notes out for myself because often my mind's drifting everywhere, whether it's a time trial, whether it's a race. I was like, God, this is actually really interesting. So... Durbo, it seems like he's really got things nailed on and he's certainly no Strata Bianchi. We did actually a little bit of a practice today out on the on the dirt roads. It was a great experience. What do you think, Lionel? What do you take out of the podcast, actually? Well, that point about the, the, the focus in a time trial, uh, really, I mean, I think every amateur rider can take something from that and apply it to their own riding, whether whether it's uh, you know battling up their 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 local Alpes and just having that focus and and thinking about the climb, breaking it down and and you know focusing on little landmarks that they that they know well and just yeah, we all kind of do it to a to a degree when when we're out cycling, don't we? You know, just us. Um, regular cyclists like if I can just get over that bit there or if I can just get past that tree I know I'll be all right you know and and I, I it was really fascinating to hear that they're the same mental battles that the elite riders are, are, are going through in a, in an event that really requires so much focus a time trial probably around an hour's effort where it's just that length of time where your mind could drift. You're probably quite easy to concentrate for the first 15, 20 minutes. But then when you've got to, you know, really start squeezing on the power and, and, and keeping the effort up, it must be very easy just to let that concentration drop one or two percent. And, and that's, you know, that could be half a dozen places in the final standings, couldn't it? And so to hear him talk about how he just focuses and, and breaks it down into... Um, into into little parts was uh, I think we can all take something from that. I think it's like 
it's like what you said there, because I'm not a specialist time trialer, and I was taking notes out of that for my normal racing. And I did allude to it in one of the questions that the thing I'm looking most forward to is the thing I hate the most, is that pressure. And I was speaking to Durbo today out on the ride, and I've been able to create this in a couple of sessions in my training, and I was able to recognize what was going on. And one of them was trying not to get dropped from Woodsy. Another one was trying to achieve these three-minute efforts. And it's this pressure. It's pressure where you can just give up and not do it. Or it's like, I'm going to do it. It's not a physical thing. It's a mental thing. And I think that's the biggest thing I've been missing from racing, as much as I hate it, is the thing that I love. It's, it's such a weird thing. And hearing Durbo talk about the time trial, and especially talking about the classics without the crowd, it took me back to racing. And that's just around the corner. It's, it's sort of just talking to you now about it. It's like, it's exciting and it's it's scary. You know, it's it's coming. Well, it's only a few days away for you guys. You'll be on a on a flight to Italy, looking forward to Strada Bianca and picking up the season roughly the point that you left it. I mean, you, you would have been going to Strada Bianca back in March if it, if it had gone ahead. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I'm pretty happy that that is on the program now. I was originally on Poland. They just couldn't resist without me. So they like, get me on Strada Bianchi. <laughs> and um, I'm there now. But we do actually have a very, very exciting announcement next week on Talking Luft. If you want to get over there and hear... I'm this, Talking Luft is not with Durbo this week because we've already heard about his style. We don't need to hear about him again. We've got a new Talking Luft next week at Life in the Peloton's podcast feed. Go across there, but I've got an exciting announcement to drop there. I'll also talk about it on the next... In two weeks' time on the Cycling Podcast. So until then, guys, enjoy this coming week. And I'm going to check in with you in two weeks' time. I'm doing an on road diary about strada bianchi milan san remo whole heap of hotel time i think there's going to be some interesting stories there so until then guys cheers you have been listening to life in the peloton the producer of this episode was will jones the music in this episode was composed by pete shelley thanks mate